Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Holidaysburg area or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. It's been a few years since my mom and dad went home to be with the Lord. My dad was, uh, he, he retired from the post office, but before that he worked for my grandfather who had a construction business, his father, and then my uncle, Uncle Fran. And I was just always amazed to watch my dad as he would, uh, he, could, he could just do anything. And he was just one of those guys who could really work with his hands and the way he handled tools and, you know, with wood and, and he could just construct anything. Um, I remember just even I was amazed watching the way he could paint. He could paint a room with a brush quicker than I could with a roller. When I was learning to paint back then, it was uh, oil-based paint. And so he would have my brother Steve and I clean the brushes, which I think was an early form of child abuse, personally. <laughs> and um, we could never get those brushes clean. And how my dad ever did that, I mean, his brushes, when he was done, would just be like new. And even to this day, I, I paint with latex paint. When I'm done, I throw the brush away. I don't, I don't even want to mess with it. And then my mother, many of you know my mother, remember her, that you know, she played the piano, and mom just had a great touch on the piano. She didn't uh, read music very well, so she played by ear. She could hear a song, and she could play it. And not only my parents, but other people I've seen in our church. You know, it's sad as, you watch, as I watch them age, and these wonderful skills that they developed in their life began to deteriorate and they, they couldn't do the things that they used to do. And then, of course, ultimately, um, God called them home. And I've seen other, and I know you have too, with your, your own loved ones and, and people that you know. Um, you know, if death was, was the final story, it would be a pretty depressing life. But thank the Lord, death is not the final story, the final chapter on our lives, if we know Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning Last Sunday, I talked about the worst of times, the best of times. We saw the worst of times, which was the tribulation period outlined for us in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, describing, describing the events of that seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel. And we see that Daniel speaks about that here in Daniel chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince, who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And we talked about how God will bring a third of the nation through the tribulation and redeem them and preserve them to populate the kingdom. We saw how God raises up this great defender, Michael the archangel, to defend the people of um, Israel. And I'm reminding you again that we are in a uh, prophecy concerning the nation of Israel and concerning Jerusalem and the temple. But we talked last week about the book of life, and yes, this passage is talking about Israel, but we saw that even in the New Testament, there's reference to the Lamb's book of life, the record uh, of the redeemed. And even what we're going to talk about this morning in resurrection, yes, these verses, the interpretation is to the nation of Israel, but the application is really, as we're going to see, for all the redeemed 
of all the ages. And this is the promise of resurrection. The promise of resurrection. Look here at verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. We saw the historical uh, fulfillment of uh, chapter 11 of Daniel, verses 2 through 35, and many Jews lost their lives during that fulfillment of history. And in the subsequent history, we know that many Jews have lost their lives. No people, no nationality on earth has been so persecuted as the Jewish people. And so we saw last Sunday that at the end of the tribulation, the armies of the Gentiles will gather against uh, Jerusalem, against Israel. We believe that's when the Lord returns at the end of the tribulation and he comes down to the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, sweeping down through uh, Israel. And it's interesting that you see some of that in the Old Testament in Zechariah 14. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. So the Lord comes back and he comes to Jerusalem just at the nick of time to save them. And he stands on the Mount of Olives where he ascended from. The Mount of Olives will be split in two. That hasn't happened yet. Now, I've stood on the Mount of Olives as some of you have. It's still in one piece. The day's going to come when Christ returns and lands right on the Mount of Olives, and it will split in two, apparently making some kind of safe passage for his people as he protects uh, the Jewish people. And this is in conjunction with his second coming in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus said that when he returns, that will mark the end of this tribulation period. Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So both uh, Daniel and Jesus' revelations here, again, are in the Jewish context. And then Daniel talks about this resurrection. Though the word resurrection is not used here, but certainly that is what is being described. The resurrection spoken of to Daniel here concerns the nation of Israel. This nation of Israel. Remember, this is a unit, chapters 10, 11, and 12. We've been emphasizing that. And so it started back in chapter 10 when the angel comes to Daniel and gives him this revelation, what will happen to your people in the latter days, chapter 10, verse 14. We believe the church, which began on Pentecost in Acts 2, we believe that we will be resurrected and translated to be with the Lord before the tribulation period begins. We realize not everyone agrees with that, but as we study scripture, that's how we see it. There's 216 chapters in the New Testament. They contain 318 references to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For every reference to Christ's first coming in the Bible, you will find eight references to his second coming. And so we believe that the first aspect of Christ's return is when he returns for his church. Now, some have called this the rapture. It comes from the word which means to catch away. And so we believe that this is happening and will happen yet in the future. Some people think that the church will go through part of the tribulation. Uh, If that's the case, then what we should be looking for is the Antichrist. But the tenor of the New Testament is, the focus is, we're supposed to be looking for the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can even translate that verse, looking for the blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so about a fourth of the Bible is what we call predictive prophecy. About half of that prophecy has already been fulfilled. And as we've seen in Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 35, all that prophecy has been fulfilled literally. So if the first coming of Christ and all that prophecy was fulfilled, and we've seen it's been fulfilled literally then I believe certainly the prophecies about the second coming of Christ are also going to be fulfilled, literally. The next prophesied event is the sudden and dramatic removal of every true Christian from planet Earth. I believe that's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. The catching away, the taking away, the, the, the resurrection and the translation of church-age saints, that's us, If you're saved, people have been saved from the day of Pentecost until this event. Now, you you talk about this out in culture, and people look at you like, uh, yeah, right, like this is uh, science fiction, or this is some kind of fairy tale. But this is exactly what the Bible teaches us. The primary passages are 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And part of what was read for you this morning, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 51 through 55, And Lord willing, we'll deal with these at length in a few weeks. Well, like the Christians at Thessalonica, there are people today who are confused about the timing of the resurrection, and both for the church and for Israel, and the timing of the translation of the church. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica to clarify what he'd already taught them before when he was with them. I'm reading from the English Standard Version because it's a better translation in this particular verse. No translation gets it right every time. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, he's talking about the translation, the resurrection and translation of the church, which he talked to them about back in the first letter, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This has been caused confusion because in my New King James Bible or in the King James Bible, even in the, some of the other versions of the Bible, it says the day of Christ has come. That's the bad translation. It should be the day of the Lord. The day of Christ is a day of reward for the church. The day of the Lord is synonymous with the tribulation period. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. Amos 5.18, it's called the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord is actually the most common term used in the Old Testament for this period of time, also called the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, why were these Thessalonians being confused, the Christians at Thessalonica? Well, for two reasons. Number one, there were false teachers coming into the church. This is always the danger in every age of the church. And some of them were even bringing letters supposedly from the Apostle Paul or the other apostles. They were fake letters. And then they were going through persecution. And as they're going through this intense persecution, they're wondering, is this the persecution that you know, we heard about is going to happen you know, toward, toward, toward the end of time? And they're thinking that maybe they're already in the tribulation period. But Paul reminds them what he'd already taught them. 2 Thessalonians 2, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So the question for Bible scholars is, who is the he? The Thessalonians knew who he was because... Paul had taught them that. Why he didn't make it crystal clear in this verse, I I don't know. But it seems that the he most likely would be the Holy Spirit. We know that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is restraining sin. If you think things are bad now, if the Holy Spirit, if God did not restrain sin, we couldn't even live on the planet. In fact, we'd probably all be dead. In fact, that's what's going to happen in the tribulation period Because uh, the Lord says, if these days weren't shortened, no flesh would survive. Literally, hell will be unleashed upon planet Earth. So someone is hindering evil. And when that one who's restraining evil is taken out of the way, then Satan will be permitted by God to produce his master deception, the Antichrist, the lawless one. We believe it's very likely and seems most likely this is the Holy Spirit who indwells individual believers. And there's also a sense in the New Testament that we as the church combined, the Holy Spirit is there in a special way. And so we believe what he's talking about is what he told them before in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, the resurrection and translation of the church. When the church is taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit is not taken out of the world His ministry of restraining is now ended in that sense so that Satan in the tribulation period can continue. So the resurrection spoken of by Daniel here is in the context of the return of Jesus at the end of the tribulation, Revelation 19, and the binding of Satan, Revelation chapter 20, for a thousand years. Now, we've often said the prophets of the Old Testament could not foresee, they could foresee into the future what God gives them in these prophecies, but they couldn't see the time in between. And you see that clearly in this particular prophecy that is given to Daniel. Daniel could not see the thousand years between the two resurrections because we are told there's going to be people coming from the dust of the earth and some will come to everlasting life and Some will come to everlasting shame. So again, we have the benefit of the New Testament and further revelation, particularly the book of Revelation. So John writes in Revelation 20, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, 
who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And it's then at the end of the thousand years that you have a period of rebellion and then God puts that down. And then that's when you have the final judgment we've talked about before, the great white throne judgment, when John says, I saw the small and dead, small and great stand before God. And we talked about that last Sunday. The books determined their degree of punishment. So the way we view prophecy is that before the tribulation begins, the church will be translated and the church will be resurrected, church age saints. And then at the end of the tribulation, Old Testament saints, Jewish believers that, and other Gentile believers that have been martyred during the tribulation, those will be resurrected after the tribulation. But then there's a thousand-year period between what, what uh, Daniel is given here between the resurrection to life and the resurrection to shame. And that's the period of what we call the millennial age. Now, again, however you view, and there is disagreement on this particular aspect of prophecy, and good godly people would, would disagree on how we interpret some of these things. But I believe all true Christians would agree with this. Resurrection, physical resurrection, is the great hope of all the redeemed of all the ages. Physical resurrection. You know, some religions teach reincarnation and, and you know, the circle of life. And if you don't, uh, you don't live good, then you could be reincarnated like an insect or, you know, an ant or a bug or a mosquito or something. So be careful what bugs you step on. You could be killing one of your relatives. But... Um, we don't certainly believe that. What we believe in is what the Bible teaches, physical resurrection. You know, one of the oldest individuals that we see in the Bible, or one of the oldest books of the Bible, we believe, is, is Job. And as far back as Job, Job said this, I know that my Redeemer lives. He shall stand at the last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me, Job 19. Job said, I, I know my Redeemer lives. I, this is an Old Testament saint. And he says, I, I know that one day I'm going to stand on the earth. I'm going to stand in my flesh. And he says, this is after my skin is destroyed, after I have been in the grave. And he says, I yearn for this. And this was the cry of the redeemed through all the ages. See, Daniel, like Job and Abraham before him, lived in this world, but lived for another world. And though we are in this world, we're not of this world. And we're not out of the world either, but we live in this world understanding that we're living for another world. Now, the angel here tells uh, Daniel... These are people who sleep in the dust of the earth. So this is the first time really in the Bible that you see sleep used as a euphemism for death. Jesus used this same analogy, this same picture. 
In John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus died, and Jesus stayed away uh, purposefully. And uh, he told the disciples that uh, Lazarus sleeps. And they said, oh, that's great. He's sleeping. He's going to get better. And then Jesus clarified for them what he really meant. He meant Lazarus was dead. And, and then later on, he says, Lazarus is dead. There's a finality to that statement, isn't there? Isn't there? When, when, when someone is declared dead and we say so-and-so is dead. And if the Lord tarries, that'll be said of each one of us one day. I do not deny the finality of death, the sadness of death, the separation of death from our loved ones. I, I understand that. But yet, Jesus in the Bible uses the imagery of a sleep. Now, this is not soul sleep. You know, some believe when you die, you just, some believe in annihilation, you just pass out of existence. Others have this kind of weird concept that you're, you're unconscious, um, maybe until resurrection or whatever. That's not what the Bible teaches. This isn't soul sleep. This is the repose of the body. Because one day that body will be resurrected. One of the great joys when we do a funeral service is to give the family hope if it's a believer. And, and I like to, to mention what Chuck Swindoll says when you stand at the graveside, that you're standing on resurrection ground. When you go, if you go and visit the graveside of one of your loved ones and they're a believer, you're standing on resurrection ground. One day that grave's going to be open, and they're going to be resurrected physically and bodily. We know that death is not the end of conscious existence. We know that clearly. Jesus reveals that in Luke chapter 16. The rich man died and was buried. That's not the end of the story, is it? The rich man also died and was buried... And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. I can't read that unless I get a chill down my back because that's just so horrific. It's the picture of an unsaved person. They died and were buried, but that wasn't the end of it. They lifted up their eyes being in torment. Now, on the other hand, we have this wonderful statement about the believer in 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wow. What must that be like? You know, we look at the death of our loved one from the earth-side view. But if we could see the heaven-side view, that when a Christian dies and, the, and they take their last breath, they are translated into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you notice there are two very distinct realities here for the believer and the unbeliever? For the unbeliever, the distinct reality is lifted up their eyes in torment. That's why I tell people, if you don't know the Lord, death is your worst nightmare. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. It's not in the Bible anywhere. You know... Pastor Brian will learn this as he goes through his ministry. He's probably already had some experience with it. Pastor Lou and I know this quite well. well we, we've done many funerals in our ministry. I've told you this before, but man, when you do the funeral for a, a believer, someone has a strong testimony. It's sad, but it's joyful. I can, I can give, we can give the family this tremendous hope. And it's not hope so hope. It's not, 
It's not some kind of Pollyanna, you know, look at the bright side, whatever. No, this is a real solid hope based on the promises of God, faith in God's word. But then we're often called upon to do memorial services for people that we're not, not sure. And again, we can't make that judgment. I'm not God. I can't look in a person's heart. But sometimes the way a person lives, or at least we would say they give no evidence of salvation whatsoever. And, and we don't preach people into hell, and we don't preach people into heaven, and we don't give people false hope either. So in cases like that, you preach to the living. We always preach to the living anyways, but I mean, you, you can't give hope where there's, you're not sure there's hope, is what I'm saying. So how would your funeral service be preached if you were to die today? Would one of us or another pastor be able to speak confidently of your testimony and Though we're sad and there might be tears, but yet there's joy? Or would it be, we just really don't know? Well, Paul reveals some of the realities of our resurrection, and it's just phenomenal. First of all, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. How do I know I'm going to be resurrected if I die? 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In the Old Testament, they had the first fruits offering. In other words, you'd have a harvest, and then the Jews would bring the first part of their crop, and it was a way of saying to the Lord, you know, you really own all of it. It's kind of like what we do in our offering. We bring a portion of whatever you decide. That's between you and God. We bring a portion of, of what our income is, and we give it to the Lord. And in essence, we're saying, Lord, we thank you for this blessing. We recognize it all belongs to you. That's kind of like the principle of the first fruits. And so uh, Paul uses this imagery that, that Jesus is the first fruits because there's more to follow. And, and what follows is believers. Now, the early church had some of the same questions that I suspect you and I have. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? You know, I pondered this a lot. Um, you know, how... What's the resurrection body going to be? Are we all going to be the same age? or you know, how, How's that going to happen? Well, some of those things we just don't know. Um, what we do know is Paul went on to explain the passage that was Bob read for you about our resurrected bodies. They'll be raised in incorruption. They'll be raised in glory. They'll be raised in power. And there'll be a spiritual body. Now, some people think, what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to be disembodied spirits? No, it's, it's, it's a body here. Paul says resurrection is like when you plant a crop. Let's say you're growing corn. You don't stick an ear of corn in the ground. You put a seed in there. And then what it produces, it's of the same kind. There's a connection, but it's different. You know, we've got a physical body. And one day, if you're a Christian, you're going to get a new glorified, transformed body. There'll be a connection there, but in many ways, it's going to be totally different. I think a spiritual body simply means we live now in the natural realm. We can only function in the natural realm. The passage says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. There were two men that we know of in the Old Testament who did not die and went straight to heaven. One was Enoch, and the other one was Elijah. 
What we do know is something had to happen to their physical body. They could not be in the presence of God in their current mortal body. And so a spiritual body, I think, simply means it's going to be uh, made to dwell in God's presence. It's going to be suited for eternity. In Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Now, um, we're not going to be little gods, okay? We're going to be conformed to his body. So I need to look at the resurrected body of Jesus and find out what were some of the things that he did. I'm not sure if we can do all of those things, like he passed through doors and things like that, but I think we're going to be on a whole new dimension and a whole new plane, things right now we can't even envision, and we're going to get to eat. And I suspect heavenly food has no calories. I would certainly think so. And I'm not sure what... I know we're going to eat some fruit. I don't know what else we're going to eat, but... The other question I get a lot is, are we going to, are we going to know each other in heaven? You know, I personally believe we are. You know, Jesus, after his resurrection, was recognizable. Yeah, there was a part where at first they didn't, know, didn't realize it was him, but yet there was a connection there from his natural body then to his resurrected body. I like what David Jeremiah says, we will still be humans and you will still be you. For some of you, that's good news. And for, well, anyways, uh, you will still be you. I really believe that we're going to recognize our loved ones in eternity. I firmly believe that. Well, the hope of the redeemed is resurrection and reward. The angel reveals some other things to Daniel that are truly amazing that we really can't know for sure, but we take the, take the Bible if the plain sense makes sense. Verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The hope of the redeemed is resurrection and reward. Resurrection and reward. Don't be like some of these super, you know, sanctified spiritual saints that say, oh, well, I don't think you should be serving the Lord for reward. That's No, the reward's in the Bible. It even talks about different types of rewards. Yeah, we serve Christ because we love him and we love people and we want to see people walk with the Lord and we want to see people saved. But yeah, it's okay to understand there are rewards in the Bible. And as we see that in the interpretation of these verses, there's resurrection and reward. Yes, this is about Israel, but the application, I think, applies to all believers. John Lennox says, for those who trust Christ, one of the practical implications of his resurrection is that it gives their life and work for him a wonderful ultimate validation It also guarantees them a glorious resurrection in the future. You know, for some 40 years, I've given my life to preach the gospel. Pastor Lou, over 30 years. People would look at us and say, what What, what in the world, you guys? I mean, talk about wasting your life. You're you're this book of fairy tales and fantasy and, you know, that's, that's what you've given your life to do? Well, we know that God doesn't view it that way. I believe the wise here are the redeemed. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the holy is understanding. It seems to say we're going to shine like stars. You want to be a star? (laughs) 
going to be. Oh, not a star in heaven. He's not going to make us into a planet or something. It says we're going to shine like stars. What does that mean? We can't know for sure, but could it possibly mean that our bodies will reflect and radiate the glory of God? Boy, the fleeting glory of this world is of no comparison to what awaits us in eternity. There's a special glory for those who turn many to righteousness. Now, I don't think this has just got to be Billy Graham or D.L. Moody or somebody like that. I don't believe that. I think this applies to everybody. I think it applies to those who are teaching our children in junior church and down in the nursery. I think that those who teach our students. I think it's, it's, it's all those who teach adults. It's small group leaders. It's those involved in discipleship. It's, it's people who support missions and pray for missionaries and, and have a concern for lost people. I think it involves all of that. Philippians 2 in the NIV says, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. So in a sense, when we share the gospel, we're in a sense reflecting the glory of God that you find in the gospel. And so in that sense, we are shining to a point and I think we will actually shine when we get to heaven. As the hymn says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So, you know, one of the things we say when we preach a message, so what? So what? Well, our hope of resurrection should make a practical difference in our lives. It really should make a practical difference. And that's how Paul ends that great resurrection chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We're not to be sitting around waiting for Jesus to come. We're supposed to be about the kingdom business. We're supposed to occupy, do business well till he comes, as the parable says. Because... That's what validates our life. That's what validates our testimony. That, that's what validates any small thing we have to give up, any inconvenience we might have, any investment of our time, our talent, our treasure into the ministry and into the work of Christ. It's all going to be worth it all. 1 John 3, Beloved, we are, now are we the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We're not going to be little gods. We'll be sons and daughters of God. We will reflect and radiate, I believe, the very glory of God in a new glorified body that will never die, will never deteriorate, will never get tired. We're going to serve in a new Jerusalem, in a new heaven, a new earth, in things that we can't even fathom now. We don't even have the capacity, I believe to know what God has for us and what awaits us. And it's not pie in the sky by and by. It's not some fantasy. It's not some fairy tale. It's going to actually happen, just as the Bible says. So does my life reflect the hope I claim to have? Does my life really reflect the hope that I claim to have? He who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If I really believe that Jesus Christ, that I could be in the presence of the Lord at any moment when he comes, 
whether he comes now or in a thousand years from now, I could still be in the presence of the Lord any moment. My heart could stop just like that. We're all one beat from eternity. So I know one thing. He's either coming for me or I'm going to him. That's a fact. That is a fact. And so I want to live my life to glorify him and be a witness for him the best that I can.